Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, Brendan here with Mark as always, episode 242, 200. And 42, Friday, May the 20th, 2022. A lot of twos in that, Mark. How are you? I'm great, Brendan. I'm great. I had to tell you, I had to tell you that um, because we're traveling, Kate and I, it's a big day this Saturday in Australia, um, and Kate and I took the opportunity to to do our, um, we did, we had a nibble, we had a nibble at the democracy sausage. Oh. National elections for those overseas listeners. The uh, Australian elections are on this Saturday. Well, funny you should say that, Mark. We didn't actually we didn't talk about it beforehand. We went last week and voted early as well, Mark. Um, so in Australia, you have the option of voting early. Ideally, if you have an excuse or a reason not to um, vote on the day. And my reason was, Mark, I was working, although this week it's changed and I'm not working on the Saturday. Um, so we we did go and vote early. And I'll tell you my little story, Mark, about voting. Tell me. Um, one of our local candidates is a client of mine. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Um, and a lovely person who owns a small mammal. I'll, I'll put it at that. Um, <laughs> Anonymised yeah, small mammal. Yes. And I went up to them. They were there handing out the leaflets. In, in, you know, and you run the gauntlet, don't you, Mark? Even on non-election days of all, everybody who wants to hand out their how to vote cards or, or pamphlets. And that person was there and I went up to them after the, actually, no, before, and said, hello. No, it was after, I remember now, and said, hello, how are you? And the person said, I I know your face. I know your face. <laughs> Where do I know and, you from? And I said, well, it's Brendan the vet. <laughs> and then it clicked and we had a good chat and uh, I'd, um, and the person, I almost said he, she, they, was very happy because I did say I voted for you. Ah, so good work. Our, our good local work. candidate, and they are a good, a good egg, Mark, as we say here, a good person. Um, so, yeah, so we vote, we vote um, for the House of Representatives and our Senate, the two levels of our government here in Australia. And um, in the House of Reps, there's there was uh, only uh, six candidates for our local seat, so that's nice and easy, but. The New South Wales seats for the Senate, there were 75 candidates. How many were there in Victoria, Brendan? A bucket load, Mark. Um, but we did have the option of not, because I remember the days where you had that huge one-metre paper, <laughs> voting paper, when you had to write every, you either write above the line uh, and you can write basically just for the, party vote basically isn't it or you write below the line but if you wrote below the line you had to write from one to 70 if you had the 70 uh, otherwise it's an invalid vote but this year and maybe i can't remember last time but you how many was it you had to do you had to label at least six, six or yeah. seven or so yeah uh, so that made it a bit easier and um, I did vote below the line because I didn't want to vote exactly on the party lines that I saw that were 
in our in our constituency mark or our uh, electoral region. So I did go below the line mark. Uh, you may or may not be proud of me, but I did stop at about ten or so. I I'm got a bit bored. Proud of you. <laughs> what about yourself? Did you go above or below? Below yeah, and the yeah. full seventy-five. Oh, unbelievable! Yeah, that's right. You are a bit of a bit of an, a, a, a political nerd, aren't you? <laughs> uh, yes. So there we go. So that's our that's our news this week, and we may or may not have a new government come late on this Saturday, which will be the day after this podcast is out there, Mark. So there we go. So, um, and I think most of our subscribers and listeners have probably fast-forwarded through all of this, so <laughs> we better jump into. So I don't have a review this week, unfortunately. Um, do you have anything? No. What's your news? My news is, well, yeah, okay, I'll do mine first. Um, it's it's a, just a little one, and we know that there's – Insect mating rituals can be quite dramatic with often the female eating the male after the event. And it's a little report and a video, Mark. Um, quite a the, cute the video, little video. Is the highlight. Yeah, quite a groovy video there about male spiders that catapult away from to avoid being cannibalized after sex. And it was. Um, Pretty amazing. Um, they sort of catapult um, sort of backwards, don't they? Um, and they were using slow motion um, video recording to study, study the sexual behaviour, said the arachnologist Shang Zhang and colleagues um, who noticed that the sex seemed always to end with a catapulting male, um, but the co- normal cameras couldn't report, um, couldn't detect it or record the details, so they used uh, the special little cameras there and uh yeah and they mentioned that the jump looks a bit like the start of a backstroke swimming race Uh, the male holds the tips of their front legs against the female's body after the mating act and then they use hydraulic pressure to extend a joint to quickly launch off the female before she can capture and eat him i was a little bit disturbed though mark did you see what they did in this um um, little study there no Um, of 155 successful mating rituals they, that they observed, 152 of that 155 catapulted to survival. The remaining three didn't fell victim to their partner. But they also, um, there we go, Fe- this is a bit I was a bit concerned about, female spiders also ate all 30 males that the team stopped from jumping to freedom with a paintbrush. So they just kept it, pushed a little paintbrush on it while it was doing its business um, and stopped it catapulting backwards and so they all got eaten um so we're um a little bit that, that um, concerned is a little about bit the, a little bit ethically. concerned about the ethics of this particular um study there nevertheless it was a pretty groovy video and we will have a link to it at betgurus.com what well, do my, you have my news brendan is um it talks about uh a little bit of a i suppose left field aspect of um of uh the potential effects of some climate change associated with climate change. I didn't. I'm this. I like to think of myself as reasonably aware, alert um, uh, to the things that might contribute. But um, this study, um, performed by an international team, but led by researchers from the University of Queensland and the University of Canterbury, has used predictive population models um, to assess the damage wild pig, pigs are causing across five continents and 
um, in particular, um, the damage that they do to soil by uprooting carbon trapped in the soil. It's estimated that these wild pig pigs are releasing 4.9 million metric tonnes of carbon dioxide annually, um, something uh, an equivalent to 1.1 million cars. Um, and so it is sort of like, you know, you sort of, of all the things that we think of that contribute to carbon dioxide release and, and global warming, there are probably a whole bunch of things that we're not conscious of, and this is one of them. Uh, so I think it is interesting that information like this might put more pressure on authorities to take a collaborative approach to uh, exotic animal, you know, feral pest control. Um, I think once we get to the point that we realise these pigs are not only causing immense environmental damage on the, the specific physical nature of the place they're in, but also releasing the carbon, the imperative to do something about them is going to become overwhelming, I think, Brendan. Yes, and they are pretty invasive, aren't they, Hall? In the, 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 they studied over 10,000 regions or maps of potential wild pig density areas with that and you know we certainly have the problem with wild pigs here in australia don't we and lots of other countries as well but yes it's uh i wonder what other wildlife or other feral sort of animals are causing such a but it's a pretty amazing impact isn't it they estimate it um as you mentioned um impact greater than a million cars mark um so yeah and they are pretty tricky to get rid of aren't they or eliminate from a region once they're feral the old pigs there it's a difficult one so yeah interesting mark a very interesting that's all i've got to say about it i was going to try and find a, 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 a quite a a, a a dad joke about um pigs and flying or something but i i did I didn't come, so yeah, it's, I've got nothing. Which, which got nothing. just, which just allows me to remind all our viewers that none of your humour is scripted. It all comes naturally, and when it doesn't come, it just isn't there. Well, none of our, virtually none of our podcast is scripted, as people can obviously tell as well. Mark, um, we have a couple of dot points. That's that's about all we go to, isn't it? And speaking of dot points, let's jump into our main topic, Mark, and this one you suggested, which is some of the exotic and unusual practice quirks or, or what's different and and I'm glad you brought this one up because it's it's a very common thing I talk to students about um, both nurses and veterinary students mark and um, comparing when when they're looking at exotic pet practice um, thinking about what's similar with exotic pet practice um, to dealing with common species and and dogs and cats horses whatever but also what's different mark and i think you wanted to um just touch on a few of the little quick points about what is different and what about exotic pet practice and what you need to think about if you go into exotic pet practice and i think the first one mark was one we mentioned just briefly off air and that is the importance of the history taking because we see so many of the problems in unusual and exotic pets 
that is directly or indirectly related to inadequate or inappropriate husbandry. So getting a, a detailed history, you often have that tentative diagnosis even before we pulled the client into the consultation room, let alone looked at the animal. And the way we stress the importance of the history taken and getting a, a full history there is we ask every new client to download from our website a detailed history form that they fill out and bring with them or email to us beforehand, which is what a few of them do. And we have generic forms for you know, reptiles and snakes and birds and small mammals, etc. Um, and I presume you do something similar, mate. We do indeed. And it is so useful, Brendan. And I've thought about this quite a lot because there are so many parallels that between uh, the standard companion animal practice and our unusual and avian pet practices. And I do think that when it's still important, the history is still important with your dogs and cats, but I find when I reflect on it that I'm thinking about things as I'm doing the physical exam and my questions to the clients are often uh, led to by things that um, the clinical signs or uh, features that I can see or feel on the patient. And because those clinical signs are often much more concealed in our exotic and avian pets, we all know about the, um, the way that they conceal their clinical signs. The history does take on some added importance. And those web-based questionnaires, they do provide a preliminary series of um, historical features that are really, really useful uh, and improve your diagnostic capability altogether. Absolutely. And I think the one that leads directly on from that is the actual clinical examination and the difference that we have with our exotic or unusual pets. We often talk about the examination from afar. So that's examining or looking at the animal well before we actually do the hands-on clinical exam. And the classic example of that would be not grabbing that rabbit out of the carry box and putting it up on the consultation table um, and getting a limited um, neurological examination and an exam of that animal because it's just so stressed out. It does a rabbit prey species thing and it just sits there and gets a very high, high fast rate. Blood glucose goes up and it, and it stresses out. So, And that can be as simple as just having that enclosure on the floor of the consultation room it, depending on the species, opening up the, the um, door of the enclosure and letting the animal wander around the room. And typically I, I do do that while I have the client um, go through the husbandry and their little history form that we've, we've, we've got them to fill out there, Mark. And the beauty of that is you can look out of the corner of your eye and the animal starts to de-stress hopefully a little bit and we can then see some of the subtle changes that might be the reason why the animal's brought into the clinic that you may not see otherwise once you um, put it up on the consultation room table so it's examination from a farmer that's what i'd um, put down as the second one and it's so true with species like birds they're in their cage and i don't know how many times people have walked into the consult room and immediately want to get the bird out to show you a lesion or uh, highlight a feature of its plumage um, and you miss so much if you haven't taken the time to see the normal body position to see the way they respond um, to a few minutes in a new environment or the, the birds will often um, 
you know, be very responsive uh, uh, when they first come into a room, but the rate at which they uh, return to, uh, you know, not being interested can give you clues about their demeanour. So that distant examination, looking at them at them from afar, absolutely critical for all those exotic and avian species. Yep. Next one, Mark, uh, and this is jumping a little bit forward if we're progressing through sort of the examination technique of them and... I, th- I think you should take this one, in. and that's using a calculator. Using a calculator because we have such unusual dose rates. Um, is that where you're headed with this? Yes. it's. <laughs> uh, you obviously haven't got a little dot point in front of you. Yes, it's small dose aliquots and yes. calc- working out what amount to give to the animal so we're not drastically underdosing or, or more commonly overdosing them. Uh, and it's it, my favourite uh, little analogy here is the uh, ferrets, the story that ferrets are very sensitive to local anaesthetics. Um, and when those cases uh, in our practice were reviewed, it was uh, that we had not been very careful with the uh, the um, specific dose of local anaesthetic and making sure that we measured the weight of the animal and measured the specific dose because they're very small. Um, And it's interesting, uh, one of my very early mentors told me um, that he used the half mil and one mil and two mil guide for his companion animal practice work that if, uh, if I as a new graduate came to him with a tenth of a mil or five mils, he was immediately worried about injectable doses because all the drugs that are prepared for those species are set up at concentrations that, you know, the dose volume is in that range. Well, that's not the case with our exotic species and we have to be very precise with the very small amounts. I always say too, Brendan, and I don't know what you think here, but... um, a practice should invest in uh, 30-unit insulin syringes, uh, the the little 29-gauge needles and the very small uh, volumes that they can accurately measure improve exotic animal practice significantly. And so that's one difference um, that I would definitely yep. emphasise. Get those little syringes with their little needles and you'll be happier. I agree totally with that. And don't be afraid. And in fact, it's compulsory for every exotic vet to have a calculator or to use a calculator on their phone. So don't, you know, take a few minutes, sit down and be careful of your decimal points um, when you're calculating We've things. all done it, Brendan. We've all had a syringe drawn up with what we thought was the right amount and it's a tenfold overdose of... Um, of the alpha adrenergic, maybe metatomidine or something like that, and um, and just making sure that uh, there's systems in place. First of all, use your calculator and get someone to double check it. Um, be aware that um, the small volumes can be confusing. And I think one another one that follows on from that is the the old don't guess and and use your resources and make sure you have an exotic animal formulary so because a lot of these dosages for commonly used drugs that are in all practices may be completely different dose rates for a particular species and it might again be completely different for a reptile compared to a bird or a small mammal so if you're unsure, make sure you look up, phone a friend, etc., um, because you might think that my dose X of 
meloxicam is correct because that's what I use in dogs and cats and it seems to be a similar dose and it may be totally wrong in an exotic species. Yeah, those formularies are gold. Um, And speaking of drugs, Brendan, um, the good thing these days compared to when I first graduated um, is that there is a wide range of medications, of drugs. Um, the pharmacy that we have for companion animal work will regularly yield many of the drugs that we need when we do uh, unusual and exotic animal practice. The, the drugs that we use overlap significantly. That Venn diagram um, is, uh, is, is a significant area that's common. But there are some parts of the Venn diagram that don't overlap, some drugs that we shouldn't use and some drugs that we need specifically for uh, unusual and exotic pets that are not applicable to uh, other species. So um, it is important just to be aware that there are going to be a small uh, group of drugs, a small pharmacy that's going to be unique for uh, each species, more or less. Yep, exactly. And what follows on from that is the compliance of those medications, Mark, in that we have the additional struggle or challenge, depending on the way you look at it, of getting the animal to ingest that product if it's an oral medication. And that's where things like compounding chemists and and whether it's in-house or or via another um, companion, actual companion, veterinary companion chemist um, come, becomes invaluable uh, where they may be able to flavour up that peanut butter flavoured or tutti frutti or banana fr- flavoured or whatever and um, um, ointment, no, so not ointment, um, liquid, um, paste, tablet, capsule, whatever, and gee, they save the day, don't they? Because you've done all the hard work and you've worked out the correct dose rate for the species involved. You've worked out the disease that requires that medication and and yet we can't get it down the throat of the animal because it just does not like it, Mark. It is one of the things that, you know, I'm not a big fan generally of compounded medications, um, but this is one situation where getting the medication in a form and flavour that doesn't stress the animal um, and doesn't um, and, and manages to get the appropriate dose in in a volume that's not going to stress them. Um, you know, I worry sometimes with birds that we can um, uh, cause them to uh, aspirate if we're trying to get too huge a volume in. So those compounding pharmacists that can help get a concentration uh, of a medication in a form that's uh, not too stressful on the the animals, they're invaluable, Brendan. Yes, absolutely. Now, we do have the occasion where we have to hospitalise these animals, whether it is for a day procedure or overnight or longer term, and that's where we have additional challenges compared to hospitalising a dog or a cat, and it includes the location of the actual enclosure you have in relation to other animals, which we'll talk about second, but it's the actual hospital enclosures mark do you want to chat about those definitely the hospital enclosures are probably one of the when 
when I was when I was first interested in this work as a recent graduate, and I'd talked to my boss at that stage, um, the cost of setting up the appropriate enclosures to ensure that there's no chance of escape and that the enclosures were going to support the recovery of the animals we had in hospital, that's a, a um, potentially a very expensive um, investment to make, um, and so there are certain characteristics uh, of those enclosures and I like to think of them enclosures as enclosures you're not going to be able to always use the standard dog or cat hospital cage to house a snake or house uh, um, a bird you're going to have to have specific enclosures that support their thermal requirements that support their need to feel uh, enclosed and in and in a refuge and protected, you're going to have to have hospital setups, enclosures that allow separation of. Um, you know, we're constantly aware of predator prey interactions, whether that be a visual uh, stimulation that we don't want um, our rabbits to see large cats um, in adjacent enclosures, um, but also olfactory concerns that um, even animals being in the same room, the hospital ward, without necessarily line of sight worries, those odours between a ferret and a rat are going to cause distress. So there's all these things about the design of ho- and location of hospital enclosures that are unique to unusual and exotic pet practice. Yes. <laughs> I couldn't have said it better myself, Mark. And it can be as simple initially if you if if you're a little bit if you're struggling or you've got so many patients you're inundated one day is put in just them in different rooms you know just keeping covering making sure you cover the, any prey species or animal that's going to be prone to be stressed out by humans walking past all the t- time and that that's where just simple things like covering the carry cages with a towel when you're transporting them to and from surgery and the and the more more um permanent sort of hospital enclosures and the 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 good thing these days isn't it mark there's lots of different brands of of commercial exotic pet enclosures and um humidity crib type enclosures that we can purchase whereas in the old days we'd really struggle wouldn't we or we would use a an ex-hospital humidity crib for for babies um, as as the um, intensive care cage um, for them, but we've got more specific ones these days. the The next one, Brendan, is um is one that I haven't touched on very often, but I see it as a real uh, management issue for exotic animal practice, and that is the concern about uh, out of hours issues. With many companion animal practices, particularly in our major population centres, there are excellent emergency hospitals now set up. And uh, and often in many capital cities, there's a choice of emergency hospitals for clients to go to. But the problem with exotic and avian practice is that many of these emergency hospitals are staffed by specialists in emergency medicine for cats and dogs and they may not necessarily be uh, au fait with the emergency care of many of the unusual and exotic species we deal with and so it's important when we are referring to these services that we have some arrangement in place and that might be as simple as the 
opportunity for an emergency uh, clinician to call and just double check with uh, a veterinarian so that the pressure then isn't on uh, me to go and see the emergency. I can still refer the case to a um, an emergency hospital, but I may need to be available to talk to the emergency hospital about um, the treatment of that case over the phone. There may be other arrangements uh, that exotic practices set up. Um, I know that some set up training arrangements with their local emergency hospital, uh, spending some time with the staff there so that the very basics of exotic and uh, avian emergency care uh, set up in a way that allows those emergencies to be dealt with. Yes, and we've certainly gone through that process of when when my current clinic, when I first started there, uh, send in after hours because we don't do after hours to the local emergency centres and them, them struggling to deal with it. And I was basically on call where they could give me a call me give me a phone send, phone me up and I could walk them through the basic care and triage of those animals and over time those calls became less and less as they became more confident with dealing with those so yeah it's and a good way of getting it that up to speed really quickly is exactly like you said um, having a training session with them and it's a positive for everybody they're more likely to um, um, spread the word about you as an exotics vet because you've trained them up on dealing with the cases that you're going to flick over to them after hours so yes absolutely and one other one, Mark, that I think, and it's and and it's often forgotten about um, if you're not dealing with many exotic pets is the diseases, Mark. Um, so we're talking about zoonoses, the contagious diseases, and also which leads on to quarantine. But not just within the clinic, but also making sure your clients, when they're bringing in those new species that they've never held before, that they are worded up on um, hygiene and uh, the risks of zoonoses from the animal that they've just purchased. So true, Brendan, and so much of companion animal practice isolation is associated with parvovirus or maybe feline respiratory tract disease. Um, And yet in exotic animal practice, um, whether it's uh, beak and feather disease in birds or psittacosis is one of the other ones that leaps to mind, whether it's uh, um, the viral diseases that we see um, in snakes, uh, sunshine virus, um, whatever, being conscious of those and using the isolation facilities uh, are critically, those, uh, those, uh, that knowledge and planning is critical to maintain trust. I know clients look at this stuff and uh, and if there are um, respiratory snakes sitting around the waiting room, not being uh, put into a separate room, not being put into the consult room, uh, away from the general traffic in the waiting room, and then another client walks in and, and they will judge a practice on how well they manage those uh, contagious diseases and um, and particularly with sunshine virus how it has such a catastrophic effect um, you don't want to be the practice that has uh, a snake just um, 
not well contained that's not into a consult room and has some uh, basic barrier care to prevent the the chance of um, of transmission between patients yep and there's a whole list of other potential diseases that we need to worry about in not just reptiles but the other species um, so our you know rat diseases our um, well, general reptile disease, um, salmonellosis um, issues, and we need to, you know, really word up our clients and our staff and have staff training to tell them about the differences and the risks um, associated with dealing these animals and, and certainly being particularly careful with our, our disinfection and our quarantine protocols um, within the clinic, which reminds me, uh, uh, it leads me on to probably my the, the final one that I'd consider, Mark, with our little list here, uh, and that's staffing. Uh, um, and the good news there is it's, it's uh, I think the exotic pet practices tend to attract staff that, are really keen, obviously, on dealing with these, but much more so than if you're working in a dog or cat practice, which I have for many years, um, with somebody who's mad keen on dogs. Um, it's it's not hard to motivate them, is it, is it, Mark? Because they're so motivated um, to deal with these unusual pets, so they're keen as mustard is probably the bottom. What I'm trying to say here, and it's <laughs> it's it's quite easy to attract, especially you know. N- nursing staff but i suppose with the global shortage with vets and, and or nurses um vet techs um it it may be a little bit more of a challenge at the moment but they they love their job and they love you explaining about um, and showing them the cases and becoming involved with the cases mark so um would you like to comment about the differences with unusual pet staff compared with companion animal well, I think that it's a good thing to think about when I first graduated. I don't think there was a huge difference. I think the the um, the passion was sort of the same, the the um, love of the animals, but certainly exotic and avian practices developed to the point where there are um, noticeable differences now in the way that they're conducted. So we can make a list like this. And that does lead to different um, different characteristics in the staff. And I think you highlighted probably the most important one, that the staff I've been uh, privileged to spend time with, uh, both support staff and veterinary staff, are orders of magnitude more interested in disseminating high-quality information. They know that if they can get that knowledge out there, if they can teach people about husbandry, about uh, environmental enrichment, then they'll have a dramatic effect on the health of the animal before there's a problem. And they'll do it at a time before it's intractable, before the problems are uh, at a point where they can't be resolved and just need to be managed. So I think that's the thing that stands out to me. The staff in most unusual and exotic animal practices I get the privilege to spend time at are just zealots passionate about um, spreading excellent information and uh, and that knowledge they know helps the pets they're dealing with. Well said. Well said, better than me. Any other comments, Mark, <laughs> as far as exotic pet practice quirks as you 
wanted to title this episode. Uh, well, I think the only other thing I was going to say, uh, reflecting on my time uh, since I started, as I as is obvious, uh, I've been doing to get to this point, um, is that when uh, when I first graduated, there were no practices that only dealt with uh, exotic or uh, unusual animals, and I've always enjoyed working both with companion animals but enjoyed my bird and rabbit and ferret and snake work but the explosion in the number of practices that now just deal with those unusual and exotic animals is a testament to what an important part of practice it is and to the differences between uh, companion animal practice and exotic animal practice Um, so I, I, I am pleased to see that um our favoured sort of practice um, is not only a pleasure to be involved in, but is also financially successful. That the businesses can uh, run on on just that aspect of. Uh, there once was a time when companion animal practice was seen to support someone's interest in exotics, but now those practices run on their own. So it's yep. a great development, Brendan. They certainly do. And initially, it was. I think it was the bird practices, wasn't it? The occasional avian practice would would go out on their own, and it used to be a big leap of faith, didn't it? Um, that gee, you, you're opening a bird only practice. How, how could you survive? And now we even have reptile only practices and small mammal only practices, and even within those groups, we have rabbit only practices, yeah, for yeah. example. So yeah, yes. Well, there you go. Um, a few tips and comments about the differences between exotic practice and and the fun i think of, of, of being an exotic pet practice veterinarian compared with companion animal and all those boring other species mark um so yes move on from them and get with the you know as usual you know real doctors treat more than two species mark <laughs> and real vets treat more than 20 species i reckon so there we go Let's get out of here and we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.